Good morning, everyone. My name is John Chandra, and we've been coming to Harbor for about a year now. And prior to this year, last year, we attended the uh, online, and then we feel like we were interested in uh, checking out this church. And then up until now, I think we love being part of such a wonderful community that you guys have here. And today, I'll be reading the scripture in Bahasa Indonesia. That's the country where I'm from, Indonesia. And I hope you can follow along with me. <laughs> okay, so today's scripture is from uh, Matthews 2, ayat 13 sampai ke uh, 23. Is it 23? Okay. Penyingkiran ke Mesir. Setelah orang-orang majus itu berangkat, nampaklah malaikat Tuhan kepada Yusuf dalam mimpi dan berkata, Bangunlah, ambillah anak itu serta ibunya, larilah ke Mesir dan tinggallah di sana sampai aku berfirman kepadamu, karena Herodes akan mencari anak itu untuk membunuh dia. Maka Yusuf pun bangunlah, diambillah anak itu serta ibunya malam itu juga, Lalu menyingkir ke Mesir dan tinggal di sana sampai Herodes mati. Hal ini terjadi supaya genaplah yang difirmankan Tuhan oleh Nabi, dari Mesir kupanggil anakku. Pembunuhan anak-anak di Bethlehem Ketika Herodes tahu bahwa ia telah diperdayakan oleh orang-orang majus itu, ia sangat marah. Lalu ia menyuruh membunuh semua anak di Bethlehem dan sekitarnya, yaitu anak-anak yang berumur dua tahun ke bawah, sesuai dengan waktu yang dapat diketahuinya dari orang-orang majus itu. This is verse 17. Dengan demikian, genaplah firman yang disampaikan oleh Nabi Yeremia. Terdengarlah suara diramah, tangis dan ratap yang amat sedih, Rahel menangisi anak-anaknya dan ia tidak mau dihibur, sebab mereka tidak ada lagi. So now the verse 19, kembali dari Mesir. Setelah Herodes mati, nampaklah malaikat Tuhan kepada Yusuf dalam mimpi di Mesir. Katanya, bangunlah, ambillah anak itu serta ibunya, dan berangkatlah ke tanah Israel, karena mereka yang hendak membunuh anak itu sudah mati. Lalu Yusuf pun bangunlah, diambilnya anak itu serta ibunya, dan pergi ke tanah Israel. Verse 22 Tetapi setelah didengarnya bahwa Arkelaus menjadi raja di Yudea menggantikan Herodes, ayahnya, ia takut ke sana. Karena dinasehati dalam mimpi, pergilah Yusuf ke daerah Galilea. Setibanya di sana ia pun tinggal di sebuah kota yang bernama Nazaret. Hal itu terjadi supaya genaplah firman yang disampaikan oleh nabi-nabi bahwa ia akan disebut orang Nazaret. Harbor, I have to be honest. Preparing to preach on this passage this week was hard for me. It was impossible for me to read the story of our savior, the refugee, fleeing political violence without seeing in this story events taking place in our world right now. Palestinian children murdered by the thousands, injured, crying out for their parents who are gone. People fleeing the violence with nowhere left to go, 
running towards Egypt for safety. Last week, I saw this image float across my screen, and it stopped me in my tracks. It's an icon of Mary and Jesus and a picture of a Palestinian mom and her son standing among the rubble. In 2,000 years, we have not changed very much, have we? The same story is told over and over. People want power, want land, want money. They kill for it. It's the same story since the beginning of time when Cain killed his brother out of jealousy in the first murder recorded in the Bible. This passage reminds us of the sober reality of the way our world is. But this passage isn't only about the sober reality of living in a world that's in rebellion against God's kingdom. This passage contains good news, too. In Advent, we hold a tension, the tension between the world as it is right now and the world as it will be. In Advent, we give voice to our longings about what is not yet right And in Advent, we rejoice in the hope we have of a day we have been assured is coming when all will really be well. That's what this passage is telling us about. This passage takes us on a journey of acknowledging what seems beyond saving in our world, sensing Jesus with us in our grief, and then looking forward with hope. That's what we're going to talk about today the world as it is, the presence of Jesus in the brokenness, and the hope Jesus brings us about the future. We're going to begin kind of halfway through the reading and then work backwards. See, last week we talked about Herod's interaction with the Magi. We said that there were two different responses in that passage to this news of the new king. The Magi responded with joyful worship And Herod responded with angry rebellion. In the first 12 verses of Matthew 2, Herod is already illustrating the reality of what we know about him from historical records. He is power hungry. He is paranoid. He manipulates. He lies. He tells the Magi he wants to honor the new king, but of course nothing could be further from the truth. But God warned the Magi in a dream not to go back to Herod, so they never went back to him to report what they found. And today's passage tells us what Herod did in verses 16 and 17 when he realized he'd been outsmarted. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Here we see Herod again reacting out of what is already in his heart. The Magi were said to be filled with exceedingly great joy when they found Jesus. But here, Herod is literally exceedingly enraged. Exceedingly enraged. And in this exceeding rage, Herod orders the death of children. To Herod, a few dozen young boys is well worth the price to retain his seat of power. To Herod, it's not even worth thinking about, not even worth sleeping on. Herod killed his own sons. What are these young people to him? Why would he care about killing other people's children? 
Matthew wants us to see this as a clear picture of what happens when we cling to our power instead of submitting to God's, when we cling to our position instead of honoring his, when we refuse to acknowledge the one true king, when we refuse to live life according to the way God tells us it should be run. This example is extreme, but Matthew is clear that this is the inevitable end of a world that has chosen to run away from God. And we know it's true. This is not the first time innocent people were killed so that someone else could retain power, and it would not be the last. In these verses, Matthew is acknowledging the world as it is. And the world as it is, is devastated by evil. In verses 14 and 15, we read about Jesus' journey to Egypt as a child. Matthew is clearly tying Jesus' story to the story of the people of Israel. The book of Exodus in the Old Testament begins with the people of Israel in Egypt and a power-hungry pharaoh ordering the murder of all the Hebrew male children. This is kind of evil. It had happened before, and Matthew's pointing this out. And this evil has happened over and over and over in the history of humans. Right, 150 years before Jesus, Antiochus conquered Jerusalem, and he told his soldiers to kill without mercy everyone they met. Young, old, women, children. In three days, Josephus says, the first century historian, that 40,000 people were killed. And this keeps happening, right? In the 300 years of the transatlantic slave trade, more than 12 million African people were kidnapped from their homes and enslaved around the world for the profit of white European and American people. In the early 1800s, in our country, the federal government forcibly displaced 100,000 Native Americans in order to take their land and profit from it. During World War II, six million Jewish people were brutally murdered by a power-hungry leader and those who wanted his favor. Over and over again. Rwanda, Syria, Afghanistan, Myanmar, Ukraine, Sudan, Gaza. It just keeps happening. And we're all capable of it. (laughs) There is no race or religion or gender that is exempt from this horrible history. White, black, American, African, Asian, Christian, Muslim, Hindu. All of us have this in us. At the root of all of these conflicts are people who want power, wealth, and position and will treat other human beings in appalling ways to keep it. We are all capable of this kind of self-centeredness and we have all been hurt by it. During the season of Advent, we are invited to acknowledge how broken our world is. In Advent, we cry out in protest against this never-ending trend of humans breaking our world, humans harming each other, humans clutching at power and position while destroying others. Matthew says this heinous act by Herod is just like what happened in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, 15. In the book of Jeremiah, the people of Israel had been conquered by Babylon. Many of the people had been killed. Many of the people who survived were gathered in Ramah, 
to start their long march to Babylon as captives. And in the face of this indescribable grief at being hauled off to Babylon, grief at the death of so many loved ones, grief over the destruction of Jerusalem, grief over the destruction of the temple, Jeremiah imagines Joseph and Benjamin's mother, Rachel, weeping over her descendants. The slaughter of innocents, the reality of evil that too often gets its way, it is not the way God intends it. And everything inside us resists against that. That's why God gifted us this language of lament in the Bible. The biblical language of lament is a gift to us in a world where so much is not as it should be. In a world where there are just often no good answers for the pain, the injustice, the brokenness that we see everywhere. The book of Psalms is filled with people crying out to God about what's broken. Psalm 13 begins with the repeated phrase, How long, O Lord, how long? Matthew here invites us in Advent to cry out in lament at what is broken around us, to protest against the evil we see everywhere, to cry out, How long, O Lord? So this Advent... If you are grieving what is not as it should be, this season is for you. This season is an opportunity for us as a community to acknowledge our deep longing for the better world we were created for. To acknowledge our desperation for the only king who can rule with justice and righteousness. In Advent, we acknowledge the world is not as it should be, and we cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. Matthew acknowledges the world is not as it should be. But I also said that there's comfort for us, there's hope for us in these verses as well, in the midst of what's broken. Let's go back and read the first part of our passage again to see what comfort we might find there. Starting in verse 13, Matthew says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Once again, in Matthew's narrative of the birth and infancy of Jesus, Matthew returns to the story of Joseph. Joseph, the model disciple. He hears from God and he obeys. He obeys immediately. Joseph didn't even wait for morning to hit the road. He heard God's message in his dream, and he immediately woke up and took Mary and Jesus and left in the middle of the night. I've never had to flee my home. If you haven't, there's a good chance you also haven't appreciated the weight of Matthew, including this part of the story. See, Matthew's writing to Christians He's writing to Jewish Christians. And in Matthew's day, Jewish Christians were doubly persecuted. Jewish people were expelled from Rome. Christians faced constant threats because of their refusal to worship Caesar as a god. 
it is likely that some of Matthew's audience knew what it was like to flee their home. So Matthew's first readers immediately felt comfort as they realized an important truth about Jesus. He understands. Jesus understands. Jesus truly is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus didn't only become a human, he became a refugee. Even in his infancy, he endured oppression and violence and terror. Jesus understands. He understands. Matthew is writing here to identify Jesus with the story of God's people. In Jesus' flight to Egypt, he's like the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. He's like the Hebrew exiles in the time of Jeremiah, torn from their homeland. And of course, Jesus and his family made it out alive, but it must have been hard for them to start over in a foreign land, not knowing the language, not knowing the customs, not knowing who to trust. Jesus' journey was not some pleasant Christmas card story. It probably looked a lot more like the artist Kelly Lattimore's rendering of the Holy Family as refugees from Latin America, hastily packing anything they could and leaving as quickly as possible for a long journey to a foreign land to find safety. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus knows our pain. He has experienced the worst humanity has to offer. And so to broken people, wounded by the world's evil, Matthew says, Jesus understands. And Jesus went through all of that in order to bring about the end of evil once and for all. Matthew also has a clear challenge for disciples of Jesus here. (laughs) That in every refugee in every hurting person, in everyone harmed by the powerful and they're grasping for more, we are to see the face of Jesus. Jesus became human to identify with us. And now, disciples of Jesus are to do the same. Matthew will later in his book have Jesus exhorting his followers about this. In Matthew twenty-five forty. Jesus says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This is a challenge to us in a world where there are currently over 100 million refugees. Over 100 million people in our world who've been displaced from their homes by war, natural disasters, political instability. And we are to see in the face of every single one of them, the face of Jesus. So Matthew invites us to acknowledge what is broken in our world as it is, and he's offering us comfort that Jesus understands. But that's not Matthew's only gift to us in this passage. Matthew also is offering us hope for the future. Matthew wants us to see that the king is bringing salvation. We've said that Matthew works hard to connect the story of Jesus with the story of God's people throughout history. That's why in the book of Matthew, there are so many Old Testament quotations. Here, Matthew quotes in the chapter, the passage we read today, Matthew quotes both Hosea and Jeremiah. And in doing this, he's again assuring his readers, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's helping them see that Jesus has come to be one with his people, 
to live through the same things that they've experienced. But Matthew also quotes those prophets because he knows what the people would feel when they recalled those prophecies. See, when Matthew's Jewish audience recalled Jeremiah 31 and those words about Rachel mourning and grieving, they would also recall what Jeremiah said just a couple verses later. Jeremiah 31, 16 and 17 says, This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Matthew's audience would know that Jesus endured the difficult things Israel endured, but that those difficulties always came with God's rescue, God's redemption, God's salvation. All the prophecies that Matthew keeps quoting are telling of God's great deliverance of his people. Just as God protected Moses from Pharaoh's plan to kill all the Hebrew male babies, God protected Jesus from Herod. Just as God worked through Moses to deliver the people of Israel from slavery, Matthew wants us to know that through Jesus, God is working on something even bigger, nothing less than the deliverance once and for all from the slavery of sin and evil. See, Matthew recalls these stories from Israel's past to remind his readers of God's pattern of rescuing and redeeming, to remind his readers that no matter how bleak things look, God has a plan and he will accomplish it. In Jesus' return from Egypt, this will inaugurate in an era of restoration. Matthew is telling his readers that the greatest rescue story in history is on its way and nothing can stop it. Oh, Herod can plot to destroy Jesus, but God will thwart his plans. The Magi go home a different way. Mary and Joseph hit the road. Matthew wants his readers to know that God has a plan to rescue the world and there is nothing evil people can do to stop it the anticipated salvation of God has begun. And Matthew bookends this passage about Herod's evil with two mentions of Herod's death. The tyrant rages against God's Messiah and tries to murder him, but the narrative ends not with the death of Herod's intended victim, but in verse 19, with his own death. He might think he wields power over the lives of others, but there is nothing he can do to save himself. He cannot stop God's plan. So as Matthew's readers look back at the exodus from Egypt and the miraculous way it was brought about, as they look back at God's merciful gift of the return from exile in Babylon, they are invited to rejoice that there is something even bigger unfolding before their eyes right now. And so in Advent, we lament And in Advent, we rejoice. We rejoice in the coming of the one who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We rejoice that he will bring lasting peace. We rejoice that the injustice we grieve will not have the final word. We rejoice that death will not win. We rejoice that pain will not last forever. We rejoice that although every earthly ruler will fail, the King of kings and Lord of lords never will. We rejoice that although the evil that is so prevalent in our world, although that will one day end, as Isaiah says, of the greatness of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Harbor this Advent, we are invited to lament what is broken. We're invited to find comfort in Emmanuel. And we're invited to rejoice that there is nothing that can stop our king. So this morning, if you are grieving the evil and devastation of sin in this world, lament. Like David in the Psalms, pour out your heart to God. Protest what is not as it should be. Speak up about it. Resist. Don't get used to it. In Advent, we resist the brokenness of our world. This morning, if you're feeling weighed down, broken, overwhelmed, receive the comfort that Jesus brings. He knows how you feel. Jesus has been rejected. He has been accused. He has been afraid for his life. He has gone without what he needs. He has been abused. He knows. And he is right there with you in whatever it is you're living through right now. And this morning, if you are weary from a world that seems to be running headlong at destruction, rejoice because you know the end of the story. Nothing can stop the love and mercy and justice of God. One day, Jesus will return and set all things right. This is a promise from a God who has never once broken a promise. In Advent, we grieve. In Advent, we receive comfort. In Advent, we rejoice. And sometimes, all three of these at once. That's why I'm so grateful for this season where we acknowledge what's broken, where we fall into the arms of Jesus, and where we look forward to the day he returns. So this morning, in these next few quiet moments, listen to what Jesus has for you today. Receive from him. If you're full of grief or anger or despair, cry out and lament. If your heart is heavy, rest in his loving presence. And rejoice in the reality of what is yet to come. So take these next few moments to sit quietly with God. And when you're ready, come on up and receive communion. The physical reminders of what Jesus was willing to endure in order to secure the restoration of all things. Receive the bread and the juice, these symbols of Christ's body and blood as his gift of solidarity with you, as his gift of love for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this season of Advent, this time every year where we get to acknowledge what we're longing for, where we get to acknowledge that the things in this world that are broken aren't supposed to be that way. 
where we get to grieve and lament those things and where we allow that grief and that lament to propel us towards longing for you. That is what this season is for. And so Jesus, you know where we all are this morning. You know what's weighing on each of us as we sit in this space this morning. So will you help each of us to hear from you now the words of encouragement or comfort or challenge you have for us as we consider what you want to say to us, what you want to give space for in us this Advent. We pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus, King of kings, Prince of peace. Amen.